0: Some say, that in the same way, all rivers lead to the same ocean. All religions lead to the same God. It's said, that there's 4,000 religions in the world. Thanks for joining us. I want to say a quick hello to all of our campuses. Thanks for being a part of our services. Let's also give it up for our God behind bars guys, real quick. We love y'all. Appreciate you guys. So we've been having a fun time in this series talking about all the different world religions, and of course we started off talking about Judaism and Christianity last week. We had a pretty tough talk about Islam and Christianity, and then this week we're talking about uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, and uh, they they actually tie together. You're gonna kind of figure it out by the end, but. But it's a it's a tough thing, and please pray for me because I get to basically summarize two major world religions in 30 minutes or less. So that's kind of tough to do. Uh, so I'm, I'm that's why I'm giving you a whole lot of notes. But I just I'm hoping it makes sense to you. And so we want to just take a, a look at all world religions because I think it's going to help strengthen our faith in what we believe. And so pull out your notes if you would. Again, thanks for being a part of our services today. Let's say our mission statement together. Our job is to do what. It's to take as many people to heaven as we can before we die, period. That's what we're all about here at Church Unlimited. Again, thanks for being a part of our services today. So let's talk, start off by talking about Hinduism. And uh, we're going to just kind of flow through this and then go into Buddhism after that. So Hinduism, uh, it b- makes up about 15% of the world's population. That's a lot of people. And so it's obviously very big in India. Uh, it's also big in Thailand, Sri Lanka, uh, Fiji is a small island, but there's a lot of little islands that it's very popular on. It's also uh, here, and it's in Europe as well as America. It's not as popular here, but it is still uh, pretty popular. So 15% of the world would consider themselves Hindu. So the word Hinduism comes from the Indus River, which flows through what is now Pakistan. Now here's what's interesting about Hinduism. There's no one founder but rather a set of beliefs that developed over time around 2000 BC. You can be a good Hindu and believe in one God, multiple gods, or no God at all. Now, you can see why this is popular in America, because you can just believe whatever you want to believe. This is the one religion that says, believe whatever in the world you want to believe, and we're good with it. And so you may make a good Hindu if you just go, you know, I kind of believe this. Why? I don't know. I just do. You may make a good Hindu. Because they just kind of believe in this all, just imagine kind of an all-encompassing belief, like just if you have a belief at all, you probably make a pretty good Hindu. And so that's kind of what they believe. So they started off, by the way, with 33 original gods, and now they're up to 330 million, I kid you not. And so I'm sure this next year, Justin Bieber will probably be included in that. I mean, I don't know, It just it's kind of anything and everything, right? I mean, it really, it really is. I'm not really trying to make fun of it, but I'm just trying to help you understand. They, they are for real about just anything kind of being a god. So um, here are the origins as far as we know. Paleographers tell us that sometime before 2000 BC, a dark-skinned people known as the Dravidians had a polytheistic, that means more than one god, fertility religion that centered upon worship of nature and use of rituals, merging human sexuality with a hope for abundant crops. Basically, let's all get together have a whole lot of sex with a bunch of different people, and that's a way that we're going to, you know, because of, we believe in fertility, we want a fertility in our crops. So let's all have a big giant orgy called religion, and hopefully they'll give us crops. So you can imagine the popularity of this religion, right? So I'm sure that took off. Okay, so about 2000 BC, the light-skinned, warlike Aryans came across, came over the Caucasus Mountains, this is where we get the work occasion from, And conquered the people of the Indus Valley. The Aryans renamed the Dravidian gods with Aryan names, but the same functions. They wrote down their songs, chants, prayers, and mythical stories in what is called the Vedas, the Brahmanas, the Arunakas, and the Upanishads. These are what they consider their sacred texts. These polytheistic fertility worship laid the foundation for what later became known as Hinduism. So basically, uh, this is our earliest recollections, but it could be older than 2000 B.C., Because since it's a collection of all beliefs, if if any belief represents Hinduism, then that means Hinduism was probably around from day one then. Uh, Because just whatever you want to believe, we're good with it. And that's really, I'm not making fun of it, that's really what they believe, like in all sincerity. So the earliest Vedas were blatantly polytheistic and devoted to rituals and sacrifice. The later Vedas moved towards pantheism. So we went from a couple gods to tons of gods to now anything can be God, okay? Pantheism is, is from the word pan, meaning everything, and theos, meaning God. According to pantheism, God did not create the world. God is the world along with everything in it. So, in other words, I like this table. I think I'll worship this table. This table will be my God, right? I found a frog. The frog looked different than most other frogs. So I think this frog is the special frog. This is my God, my God frog. So, I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but that's really what they believe. They believe that everything is God, That God is in everything. Now, what's interesting to me is a lot of motivational speakers today in Europe and in the West and in the U.S. as well um, use a lot of what they would call Eastern philosophy. They say, well, my teachings have been influenced by Eastern philosophy. They use the word Eastern philosophy because that's a nice way of saying, let me not use the word Hindu and freak you out. So I'll just say Eastern philosophies, but Eastern philosophy is Hinduism. And so, you you ever been around someone who says, oh, let me just close my eyes and get connected to nature, or become one with energy, you know? Those are all Eastern philosophy Hinduistic phrases. And so, when you you hear that kind of stuff, you've ever been to one of these motivational seminars and say, let's all close our eyes and meditate and become one with the universe. That's Hinduism. They're not going to say that, because then you would push back and go, "Whoa, whoa, 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 I'm not a Hindu. And so, but that's what Eastern philosophy actually teaches. So, Hinduism can be found in a lot of motivational teachings, and I'm not against all motivational books. I've got a ton of motivational books. I've, I, I listen to, you know, I, I listen and read a lot of the positive literature, but when I turn it off or put the book down is when it starts to go into this whole, we're one with the world, and the world's one with us, and all this kind of stuff. That is simply not true. Uh, we, we are not one like that. It's not this, this giant ball of energy that we're all connected to, connected to the infinite kind of thing. That's, just, that's a Hinduistic teaching. This is also something you got to be really careful. There's, there's one thing, it's one thing to believe in protecting the planet, which I believe in that. In other words, like, I don't want smog as much as the next guy. I don't want to destroy our, you know, rainforests or anything else for that matter. I mean, I understand that. I think it's good for us to be good stewards of the world that God gave us. That's all good. But if you go to an Earth Day celebration, when you're there, there's people who just simply want to protect the planet. Nothing wrong with that. Unfortunately, there's also a lot of people there that believe that the earth is God. But actually, the earth is created by God. It's not God. And so this is where you have to draw a line. This is why people that really get into climate change and global warming, I'm talking at the next level. Again, I, whether you believe the world is warming or not, I, I, no, no offense, I don't care whether you believe it or not. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't change my view of you or your view of me. Whatever. Believe what you want on that. I'm not a big believer in that. I think that's why they changed it to climate change because, frankly, they they found out the earth was warming and also cooling at the same time because it's called seasons, and they get rougher. They get more hot sometimes and more cold seasons as well. So, I mean, you know, again, I'm not going to argue that with you. My point is is that what, what you believe in that is no big deal, but where it crosses the line is people who turn that into religion. That is basically Hinduism. Where you start to turn the world, we have to protect the world because it's you know it's our mother, it's our God, it's our no, it's not. It's it's a created entity that God, It's a created, it, it 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 it's God made it, but it's not God. Does that make sense? And so that's where we have to draw the distinction. That's one of the, the issues that I take with Hinduism. So okay, it goes on to say although the early Hindu scriptures um, had mentioned many gods. The highest goal, according to the later Vedic literature, was union with Brahma, which is another way of saying the, the impersonal absolute, the infinite, if you will. Okay? The priests of Brahma became known as Brahmins, who performed ritual duties for the community, which were demanded in the early Vedic writings to appease the many gods. The Brahmins also maintained a monopoly on the higher truths of pantheistic Brahmanism. Brahmins grew very powerful until they became the highest social class. Now, around 500 BC, this is important to understand. 500 BC, still more writings were added to the Hindu scriptures. Their purpose was to establish Varna, which is a rigid caste system or social hierarchy. Caste is C-A-S-T-E. Here's what a caste system is. is basically you're born into this either on the higher end of the totem pole or the lower end of the totem pole uh, of the hierarchy. If you go to India to this day, they still have a caste system that's still around. This isn't just something of ancient years have passed, but this still goes on today. Now, the two foundation we're going to talk about more about the caste in a minute because it'll help you understand where Hinduism comes from, but the two foundational beliefs of Hinduism are reincarnation and karma. Reincarnation and karma. Reincarnation is the process that takes the Hindu through the great wheel of samsara, the thousands or even millions of lives all full of suffering that each Atman or your soul, that's what they refer to as your soul must endure before reaching moksha. Now moksha is the ultimate goal. moksha is liberation from suffering and union with the infinite. So we get reincarnated again and again according to Hinduism over and over and over again and uh, and ultimately hopefully you're getting better and better and better and ultimately you get you don't have to go reincarnate that last that last cycle no, you're so great. You're so amazing that you just connect with the infinite. That's like the ultimate goal. So here's where karma comes in. Karma means action that has to do with the law of cause and effect. This is something that is true, that there is a law of cause and effect, but the karma takes this truth way beyond truth. And karma really, for the Hindu, means merit or demerit, which means your merit or demerit, whether you're good or bad, attaches to your soul or your atman according to how one Lives their life. So let's say I'm a good guy, then when I die and reincarnated, I may go up the totem pole and go from a merchant to a nobleman. Maybe from a nobleman to a warrior. Maybe from a warrior to a priest, right? It means that, wow, I've really attained. Let's say I'm not a good guy. Oh man, then probably when you die, you're going to become a dog. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You got a dog's life now because you weren't a good guy, okay? Now, if you're reincarnated as one of my wife's dogs, that's a high level, that's very good. <laughs> You're doing very well in life if that's the case, I'm just telling you right now. Now, I'm joking around, but really, they really believe this, that you can be reincarnated to be an animal, uh, a plant, uh, a tree, I mean, whatever, I mean, you you get reincarnated to be something, you know, and so they they really believe that, so if you're good, then hopefully you get reincarnated to be something better or someone better. If you're bad, then, you know, that's bad, and so that's kind of how that works. So this all comes down to your duties, your work controlling your desires, and ultimately this leads to your salvation. So, let's go back to the caste system because this is now going to put it all together and make sense for us, okay? The four castes, the four major castes are the priests, which are called the Brahmins, the Shatiras, which is warriors and nobles, basically there's just like special people, I guess, the Vaisyas, or the merchants and artisans, and the Shudras are the slaves, that's what you do not want to become, Okay? Each caste was then subdivided into hundreds of subcastes arranged in order of rank, and the absolute lowest of rank is the untouchables. Not to be confused with Americans called deplorables, by the way. That's a joke. Okay, so the untouchables is like the lowest of the caste system, okay? Here's the problem with Hinduism. Here it is. The only way out is reincarnation. So if you are a slave, stinks to be you. Here's what that means. Like if you say, man, I don't want to be a slave anymore. And you're living somewhere in India, they go, they they they'll tell you, no, according to our teachings, you're a slave. So the best thing you could do is just be a very good slave, so that when you die, you'll come back maybe as a master. So in other words, you can't you can't get free from that. Oh, I'm poor, I'm broke. Well, then you're gonna stay broke. That's what they teach them. You can't ever have anything then because you were born into that, which means you must have messed up the last life. So here you are poor. So you got to stay poor and just be a good poor person, and hopefully you'll die soon and be reincarnated into someone who's not so poor. This is what they teach. So let me, let me just explain this. So a friend of mine named Mike Hayes, he's a pastor in Dallas, Mike in the 80s went to India to minister to people. When he was there, he was ministering to different tribes. At one point, his camera battery ran out. Now, this is back when we used cameras, right, before we had them as phones. But he needed to go get another battery. So he knew there was a store in town. It was the only place that sold gear like this, like electronics, stuff like that. So he knew, he knew he had to go there. So on his journey to the store, the store, right in front of the store, were hundreds of people laying all scattered around the ground, crying out for help, for money, for food, for water. And among all these hundreds of people crying, this is a real scene. This really happens in India all the time. Among these hundreds of people were people dead all among them. This is how much they were starving. to. They're literally starving to death. They please give me water. Please give me food. In their own language, they're begging for this, begging for some kind, of, some kind of money so they can go buy some food, get some water. And among them are dead, decaying people everywhere. So here he is walking through these people, begging him for money and for food, just giving what he had to them, just trying to get to the store to get a battery. It's very emotional. He's very emotional seeing people dead all around him. De- you know, just imagine there's buzzards, there's, there's bugs on these bugs. I mean, this is disgusting. I'm just trying to help you understand, this is, but this is what's really going on. He's walking through these people begging him. He gets to the store, opens his door to the store, walks in, and there's a guy behind the counter acting like nothing's, nothing's wrong. And so he, he goes to buy the battery, and as he does that, he, asks, he says, you know English? He says, yes. He says, how are you okay with all the people outside dead, or almost dead, begging for food. How are you okay with that? And he goes, oh, that's just that's their lot in life. They're born into that. So there's no helping them. You just say, huh, man, karma's been bad for you. That's just who you are. And hopefully you'll just die quick so you can be reincarnated into someone better like me, the shop owner. This is what they believe. So you can imagine the massive lack of hope that this religion has for anyone who's on the lower end of this. I found something really cool, by the way, in my research. This is pretty cool. 1947, when India became a nation in 1947, the government officially outlawed discrimination against untouchables. The greatest force for changing these laws and customs which kept untouchables in virtual slavery has been the influence of Christian missionaries. It's pretty cool, huh? They have played a major role in challenging the socioeconomic religious power blocks in India. Basically, Christian missionaries said, this is not okay, and we can help them. If they're asking for food, give them food. If they need medical care, give them medical care. And so they went over there and built hospitals and hospices and helped people and really made a huge impact. And so it makes me proud of my faith to know that we've made an impact. By the way, did you know your church, Church Unlimited, has planted over 50 churches in India to help take the gospel to people like this? It's a great thing. So you have have made a difference. Every time you give, by the way, we're going to plant some more churches in India this next year. Wouldn't that be great? They go into places that that teach this where people lack massive hope and teach them there is a better way and that Jesus is the answer. And we take that to them. It's a wonderful thing. And so, but just, this is a great definition. Helps you. Yeah, let's just give the (laughs) glory to God for the ability to make a difference. It's a great thing. So that is in a nutshell... Hinduism, and they believe the only way out of this cycle is just this perpetual uh, reincarnation is something better and better. They hope better and better and better. This is how they get to millions of reincarnations because they they figured that hopefully after millions and millions, you'll figure it out and become spiritual enough to get connected to the infinite. So that's that's their hopes. So that's what that looks like. So I want to interrupt this message real quick and, and just challenge you guys to be here next week. We're talking about Mormonism and Scientology. Be sure to be here for that. They do not connect, by the way. <laughs> there's no connection between those two. But we'll be talking about both of those next week as we conclude this series. Then after that, you are not going to want to miss church Super Bowl weekend. I know you're thinking about missing church Super Bowl weekend, <laughs> but you're not going to miss it. Super Bowl weekend. There's plenty of time to get ready for the Super Bowl still. But we're going to have regular services at all of our campuses except our Sunday night service. We will not have that because of the Super Bowl. We're not going to try to compete. But we have our regular services uh, all during the weekend other than that. And we're going to have a great message called 30 Second Theology where we take the best, most creative and funniest and most compelling commercials of Super Bowls past and teach off of them. Check this out. And there's your beautiful baby. Any day now. Really? You're eating Doritos? He's eating Doritos on my ultrasound. Do you see what I have to do? I know. know. (laughs) (gasps) Give me that. to miss 30-second theology. We're going to have a lot of fun with this. Don't miss Super Bowl weekend. Plenty of time still to go to the game. And let's be honest, all our teams are out. All right? Let's just be honest here, all right? So we can all watch Tom Brady win another one, you know, in our misery. It's ridiculous. But anyway, so. Oh, you people from Boston, go back to Boston. Come on. Give me a break. So, no, we love you. We do. It's, It's going to be hard, but we love you. I mean, because we're told by God to love you, so we love you. Glad you guys are here. So don't miss, though, that that's going to be a great weekend, 30 Second Theology. Be sure to be part of that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, let's shift gears and talk about Buddhism now. So pull out your notes again, and let's talk about this. So Buddhism uh, evolved out of Hinduism, which means they also believe in Tana, which is another word for reincarnation. So this Buddhism does have a founder. The founder uh, is this. The man who formulated Buddhism was Siddhar- Siddhartha Gautama, who was born a Hindu about 560 B.C., at Lambini near the border of India in what is now called Nepal. So Siddhartha Gautama was a founder of Buddhism. So we're about to give you the tradition of how they believe it all started. But he was born into the caste system. He did not like the caste system, by the way, and so he fought against that. But more on that in a minute. So here's the tradition of how Buddhism was founded. Here's what they believe. Tradition says that when Gautama was born, a seer prophesied that he would become the greatest ruler in human history. The seer added that if Gautama ever saw four things at the same time, if he ever saw sickness, old age, death, and a monk who renounced the world, the boy would give up his earthly rule and discover a way of salvation for all mankind. Now put your finger there in the notes because I'm now going to kind of go off the notes because it was too much to write, but let me just explain what happens at this point. Okay, so Gautama, uh, Siddhartha Gautama's father, did not like this prophecy, so he built a palace for his son to grow up, grow up in, and he told his son, you're never allowed to leave the palace. So he grows up in this palace, never seeing any part of the world, and never seeing around what's going on around him, because his father knew if he saw these four things, he would know his prophecies fulfilled, and therefore, you know, he would, you know, become this religious leader, right? And so he grew up in this palace. Around age 20, now he gets married, as he becomes an adult, he gets married to a girl named Yasodara. She bears him a child. At age 29, he leaves the palace and wanders off into some area park near where his home was. When he's there, guess what he sees? He sees these four things. He sees someone um, who is very, very sick, someone who is very old. He sees a dead person being carried by someone to bury the dead body. And he also sees a monk who had renounced all worldly possessions. When he sees all four things, he realizes. This prophecy is stronger than my father's rebuke. This must be what I'm supposed to do with my life. He goes home. When his wife is asleep, he kisses her goodbye and and his baby and leaves them forever. Puts on a yellow robe and wanders the earth as a beggar monk looking for the riddle of life. In the process of that, he first tries to go read the Upanishads and other teachings of Hinduism and he had already experienced the sensual side of that, the sensual pleasures of Hinduism, of of their worship, and he said, and he rejected that, said that is not the answer. Then he decided to do what monks do, which is to reject all things worldly, no sex, no food, no any kind of worldly pleasures, almost starved himself to death, got down to almost nothing, and realized this was not the answer either. Then the tradition says he went and sat under a tree for 40 days, In these 40 days, he fought Mara. Mara is their version of the devil, okay? And so he fought Mara, uh, had victory over Mara, and in the middle of this, discovered the greatest spiritual truths and connected to the infinite. This is what he says, okay? And so this, let's pick up now back in the notes. He experienced, under that tree, he experienced the highest degree of God consciousness called nirvana. Not to be confused with the band from the 90s. So... (laughs) He experienced the highest degree of God consciousness called nirvana, literally the blowing out of the flame of desire and the removal of all suffering. Through this experience, Gautama felt that he had found salvation. From then on, he was known as Buddha, which also means enlightened one. Okay? That's what he believed. So he didn't believe that you should be all into into the pleasures of sensuality. He also did not believe that you should be In total asceticism, asceticism is a word for very strict self-denial, like no money, no worldly possessions, no sex, no food, no any cravings to be desired, none. So he said, you shouldn't just go for everything you want. You should also not go for nothing that you want. He believed in what's called the middle way, okay? Here are the four noble truths that he taught. He taught that suffering is universal. The cause of suffering is craving, wanting something you can't have. The third is the cure for suffering is to overcome ignorance and eliminate craving. And the fourth is you suppress craving by following the middle way. So the middle way would be right, not going for the sensual desires, not going for total lack of anything, but there's a middle ground, the middle way, okay? So the middle way is this. Buddha claimed that whoever could follow his eightfold path would eventually reach nirvana, a release from the endless cycle of death and rebirth. He basically said you don't have to constantly die and be reincarnated. If you just do these things and follow the middle path, then you can connect with the infinite now, whenever you die, instead of having to wait through all these different lives of being a dog and a cat and a mouse and a frog and a person and a this and a that. You don't have to do all that. You can go straight there, okay? So here are the eightfold paths that consisted of the eight ways of right living. Here they are. He believed in the right, you have to have the right viewpoint, right aspirations, in other words, your motives matter, right speech, right behavior, right occupation, right efforts, right mindfulness, and right meditation. Now, meditation, this is where we get yoga, okay? Yoga originated in Hinduism and also Buddhism, okay? Now, by the way, does this mean yoga's bad? No, yoga can be great. It's a great way to stretch your body. It's a great. It's very healthy. There's a lot of good reasons for yoga. I understand all that. Maybe you're really into it. That's great. But where I think we should draw the line as Christians is when they start talking about the whole meditation, okay, now let's meditate and connect with the world and connect with the one and the infinite and this and that. That's a good time for you to bow your head and say, Jesus, you're my God, and I'm just going to connect with you. Make sense? So do your yoga, just pray, okay? When I was in junior high, I took some karate classes. Clearly, I did not go very far with that, but (laughs) anyways, I took some classes. It was kind of fun, you know, and I remember when when I was taking this class, the instructor, this is just up the road from my house where I grew up, uh, the the instructor would, you know, we do all these stretches, and then I remember during the stretching part, uh, he would have us all start to meditate. He said, okay, let's all meditate now. And everyone would bow their head, and he's like, close your eyes, and let's connect. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but something in me just knew it's hidden right. It was weird. It was like I, I couldn't explain at the time because I was just a kid. I was already a Christian, and I took my faith series, but I wasn't like super devoted to God at that point, but I did believe in Jesus, and I had accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I, I knew what all that meant, so I knew I was a Christian. But, I mean, I had not really... You know, like grown a lot in my faith, stuff like that, but just something in me knew, mm, I don't like this. It was weird. It was just something in me, just like it was like my spirit did not bear witness with what they were doing. You ever had that? You ever had just something kind of like an inner knower, just go, no, this is not cool. You ever you ever been to like a motivational seminar? And they're all like, now let's all bow our heads and let's all meditate and let's all connect. And in that moment you start to go, uh, what are we doing? This is weird. I don't, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not buying this, right? And so that's the spirit in you saying, "Mm -mm, that's not right, because what I connect with is the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So I remember going home and telling my mom, mom, I don't want to do karate anymore. She's like, okay, she didn't care. She's like, okay, you know. I didn't really explain everything to her. I didn't really know what all that meant, but now looking back, I realized that what he was leading that class to do were things that I didn't believe in. And so now let me just say this, there's some great karate courses you can take, some great yoga classes. I know a lot of Christians that are into that, nothing wrong with that. In fact, in fact, Life uh, Martial Arts here in town, those are great believers, those guys are awesome and they actually uh, really apply a lot of Christian principles in their teaching. So there's some great ones, I'm sure there's other ones out there too like that. So there's some great ones out there, I highly encourage your kids to go get involved in stuff like that, as long as you know what's behind it. Does that make sense? So there are some good ones out there. So I'm not trying to say don't do karate or don't do any kind of martial arts or don't do yoga. No, no, just make sure who is your instructor. You need to realize they're not just instructing you in physical stuff, they're instructing you in spiritual stuff, so you better know what they believe. So I would just make sure you ask some questions about that as well. So again, I know some great ones. My kids took karate and and uh, I know a lot of the instructors that, that where they went were believers, and so I, I felt very comfortable, so nothing wrong with that. But anyways, but this is where we get yoga and some, some of the uh, martial arts, uh, some of the meditation comes from some of this stuff too. Now, Buddhism became popular to poor Hindu people because it means they can escape the caste system through right living. So you can imagine, if you're a low man on the totem pole in this whole caste system, you're like, this is great. This guy comes along and says, I don't have to just be stuck being poor I don't have to be stuck being a slave. I can just begin to do this right living and break out of this. So it became very popular because of this as well. So that is what... Buddha basically taught. Now let me just let's let's contrast all this with Christianity real quick, okay? Now here's the thing: have you ever, have you noticed something about Hinduism and Buddhism yet? Maybe you've noticed this about all world religions. We're gonna talk about a, a lot about this next week as well. But you may notice something: all of these people that founded these religions talk about what they experienced. Like Buddha tells this story about how then I went and I sat under a tree and I fought Mara, and then and then I got this God consciousness that connected me to Him, and so now I have all this truth. You know, the thing that I would have liked to have asked is like, hey, when you were fighting Mara, was there anyone there that saw that? No, it was just me. So just you and Mara fighting. Yeah, me and the, and the, the devil, which is, they called Mara. Okay, so no one there witnessed it. No, nope, just me. Okay, when you had this God consciousness and connected to the infinite, was there anyone else there to see it? No, it was just me. So I'm supposed to just buy into everything you're saying because you put a yellow robe on and shaved your head. I'm just supposed to just assume everything you say is true. I'm not trying to knock this religion. I'm just trying to say that, it, it, that you know, here in the West, one thing that we do is critical thinking, which means we need to take a critical look at all religions and say, is this true? Is there accuracies in this? And one thing that always bothers me about other world religions is that almost all their books are written from one person, or if they're not, they're very contradictory. And oftentimes, like Islam, they're written from one person and they're still contradictory, right? Hinduism comes along and says, you can contradict all you want. We don't care. I don't believe that. Perfect. You're a good Hindu. What? I mean, so just kind of, you can make it up. And, and, and so here, here's where I'm going with it. A lot of the world religions, almost all of them, have a, some founder who says, oh, I experienced this great enlightenment or this connection to the infinite or God or an angel showed up and talked to me or whatever. Will anyone else see that? No, just me. So you were the only one there that day. Yeah, it was just me. This is what I love about our faith. Jesus didn't say, I know of a great way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Then he did something miraculous, and everyone saw it. You understand that? So we have all this, oh, I went over this hill, and I talked to God, and this angel came and talked to me, and I experienced this and that. Was there anyone there else that saw it, anyone that can corroborate the story? No, just trust me. So I'm just supposed to go with what you say and devote my life to this, and no one else was there to corroborate your story. And Jesus comes along and says, hey, by the way, I'm going to die. Yeah, I know. We all died, Jesus. No, no, no. But then I'm going to raise back a new life in three days. Very specific. What? Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. You're going to see me do it. And I'm going to prove that I'm God. And then he did it in front of hundreds of people. See, so that's the thing. We have corroborating evidence. We think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are? Those aren't guys who just made something up. Those are four eyewitnesses who wrote down their accounts. Those are just the ones that we have in the Bible. There's a lot of other eyewitnesses who saw Jesus die. I mean, he didn't do it in secret, he he went to the Roman court system. and, And believe me, Rome knew how to kill people, they were really good at it. They killed him, buried him, assigned guards to his tomb, yet he still comes back to life. There were witnesses who saw what Jesus did. We don't have a faith that just makes you have to blindly follow what some guy says happened that we didn't see happen. Everyone saw it happen. That's why the cross and what happened on the cross and the resurrection is such a big deal because everyone saw it happen. Why else would 11 of the disciples be killed for their faith if it was a lie? If someone's got a knife over me and they're like, we're going to kill you now because you believe in Jesus. And if I made the whole thing up with all my friends, I'd be like, whoa, 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 don't kill me. We made the whole thing up, man. the whole thing was a scam why would they be willing to die for a lie? They were killed for their faith. Peter was martyred for his faith. Go look at his bones if you want at the Vatican. There he is, physically, in front of you. Guys, there were all kinds of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus die and resurrect. That's the difference between our faith and all other world religions. And So two things I want to say real quick. Number one, we are saved by grace. See, in in Hinduism and in Buddhism, as well as other isms, it's all about you got to do this and do this and do that, and hopefully you'll be saved in the end. Guys, we start with salvation because it's not what we do. It's what Jesus has done for us, the saving work on the cross. He did the work for us at the cross. Ephesians 2:89 says for just by grace you have been saved. Doesn't say the middle way, the higher way, the lower way, this path, that path. It says for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Then it says for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so basically, we don't do good works to get saved, because we're saved we then go do good works. You see the order? And so, whereas my wife likes to say, we don't strive to get the victory, we start with the victory. We start with the victory through salvation in Christ. And look at John 14, 6. It says, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Buddha comes along and says, Follow my path, do all these things, and eventually, hopefully, it'll lead you to a salvation. Hinduism says, Just be really sincere in whatever you believe, and make sure you follow the rules of your beliefs, and then hopefully, it'll all work out for you. And if it doesn't, don't worry about it. You're being reincarnated again, and hopefully, you have better beliefs then. And so, hopefully, you just, you, just, you just keep working towards it, and hopefully, eventually, you'll eventually get it. No, no, no. Jesus did the work for us. This so number two. Hinduism says any path will do. Buddha says he knows a path to the way. And Jesus said and proved that he is the way. Amen. And everyone saw him do it. Everyone saw it. That is the difference between our faith and all other faiths. So maybe this is your first week with us during this series and you think, I don't know, I don't really buy that everyone saw it. Well, I will encourage you to go back and listen to the first message. Just download the Church Unlimited app and go listen to the very first message on Judaism and Christianity because in that message we unpack all the eyewitness accounts of Jesus, people who saw him die and resurrect. Guys, this stuff wasn't done in secret. Everyone saw it happen. That's why we literally split history from this one event. B.C. and A.D. is based upon the event of the cross because he didn't just say I'm spiritual and I can connect to God. He said I'm going to do something God like. I'm not going to act God like from the standpoint that you just think I'm a good person and I look real spiritual. I'm going to do something that no man can do. I'm going to die and I'm going to come back to life. Then he did it. He actually did it. That's what our faith is built upon. The historic event that is recorded in history from eyewitnesses who saw it. So Would you take a moment now and just let that sink in and realize, wow, our faith is not based upon what some guy claims that no one saw. It's based upon what some guy said he's going to do, then he did the unthinkable, he rose again. If you're ready to receive Christ, you can do so right now by praying a very simple prayer. It's not complicated at all. You don't have to become super religious, you don't have to join the church to receive Jesus. You don't have to become weird like your favorite Christian aunt that's weird. You don't have to do that. Please do not judge Jesus by his weirdest followers. (laughs) Receive Christ for who he is. He died and he rose again. Right now, you can bow your heads and pray this prayer with me. We're going to pray this out loud together across all of our campuses. You can receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior right now. Would you pray this prayer with us? You can say this out loud. You can say, dear Jesus, I realize you died for me and you rose again. I believe that, and I repent of my sins, and I ask you to come into my heart and be my Lord and be my Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. In your name we pray. Amen. And God good? Woo! His Word is so true.